Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a great musician, a fantastic writer, a fellow kaiju enthusiast, plus my pal to boot. Please welcome Zach Green. Howdy, pal. How's it going? It's going great. Really excited to talk about today's movie with you and all kinds of other horror because, like I said, you are a kaiju enthusiast, although Mm -hmm. that is not the kind of movie that we're talking about today. True. But first, I got to know, where did it all start for you, man? Where did your love of horror come from? I've been into horror like as long as I remember, to be honest. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street's one of the first big ones that I remember watching as a kid. I had those VHS that had like Freddy with his arms spread out on the side, but I, I didn't have all of them. So I just had like bits and pieces of his arms and like half his face. I think I had like one, three, five and new nightmare. So like half of them, some of the good ones uh, too. So it worked out. All right. Yeah. Some of the good ones. Uh, one of the bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> audience you decide which is which you know i always hear people call (laughs) number five is dream child yeah yeah and i always hear people say that's one of the worst ones but i have like this weird affinity for it where i don't think it's that bad but i think i'm probably alone in that (laughs) certainly alone on this (laughs) podcast (laughs) but i also i don't know i also like grew up renting puppet master movies from local video store I, I don't know. I got more serious about watching horror movies in college when I started finding some like more indie stuff that was around when like Behind the Mask, uh, The Rise of Leslie Vernon came out, The Hatchet movies, Let the Right One In was around that time. So a lot of that stuff was like, oh, uh, this is like a thing I can like really be a fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a YouTube channel around that time and it was very bad. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man, we've all been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I I mean, hey, sounds like a great way to get into it. Freddy is a huge, huge uh, icon for a lot of people. I also was wondering, so it's clear that politics plays a huge role in your music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the great band Chop Seven Times. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you feel like horror has an influence as well, or if you feel like the current state of politics and capitalism in the U.S. is enough of a horror show that you can kind of just leave it there. Uh, I think if, if horror is an influence in my music, it's definitely more of a subconscious thing. Because mm-hmm. I may, so anyone who's unfamiliar with my music, which is probably most people, I make really angry political cyber grind which is basically I make blast beats on a computer and scream about why cops are bad (laughs) as we all should. (laughs) Yeah. But because uh, the stuff I make is sort of an offshoot of grindcore and grindcore has this history of delving more explicitly into horror and like death metal as well. And a lot of metal genres will have that sort of imagery. I Mm -hmm. I've kind of avoided overt references. I think some of the the more conscious stuff actually would be like maybe how like John Carpenter synths sound occasionally. I've tried to yeah. replicate that a few times, but n- as far as like subject matter, not as much because I don't want to yeah. really end up it being like a gore grind artist, sure. pigeonholing yourself that way as well. Yeah, I want to eventually when I make merch, I want it to be something people can probably wear in public. <laughs> That's the dream. You've also, time for kaiju talk. Yes. You've written a bunch about Godzilla in particular. Yes. Discussing fun hypotheticals where you pit him against other monsters and the like. Yes. And yet, I happen to know that you think Gamera is really neat. How do you respond? I honestly, I, I like Gamera more than Godzilla, if I'm being completely honest. I knew it. I, I like the underdog. And the just the hi- the history of Gamera is like so interesting to me how it was this sort of imitator that was kind of seen as like the low rent knockoff and then in the heisei era they were like hey what if gamera was like super sick (laughs) (laughs) and for my money that heisei gamera trilogy is like one of the best trilogies ever made if not the best because there's no like explicit like this is the bad one of the trilogy yeah it is really great i like that trilogy as well yeah, uh, I will say, I also think that uh, Gamera versus Giron yep. is one of my favorite kaiju movies, period. I think that it really like strikes the balance between what I'm looking for in terms of like incredible miniature work. Mm-hmm. There's some like weirdly out-of-place gore in oh, that yeah. movie. 
<laughs> those those Showa era Gamera movies are really weird tonally in almost yeah. like a in almost like a hetera kind of way where it's like really kind of kid friendly, but then someone gets their legs <laughs> sawn off by a laser beam, <laughs> like you do. Yeah, <laughs> and then of course the creature designs are really fun, yeah. and I think that Gamera himself has an incredible design as well. So I am yeah. here to co-sign that Gamera rules. Yeah, and hell, uh, Pacific Rim kind of took one of the Gamera designs wholesale. That's right. Knifehead. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite subgenre? I know we talk about all kinds of horror. You've talked about a lot of ghost stuff, a lot of kaiju stuff, a lot of slasher stuff. Do you have a favorite or are you kind of just all over the place? If you ask me right now, which is, I guess, what you're doing. That's, uh, what, that's <laughs> that is straight up what I'm doing. <laughs> right now, it would probably be kaiju. Hell yeah. At different points in my life, it was different things. I went through a slasher phase. Back in college when I was really getting into horror movies, I really went, checked out like every slasher movie, even like the really bad stuff. And at after a certain point, like I still love a lot of those movies, but after a certain point, it gets... You can only see a dude in a mask with a machete kill people so many times before you're like, yeah, I get it. That's your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. I have, Just kidding. I have, Jason, don't listen to him, baby. I have to be in a mood. Yes. I think that, that that's very true. That you really, especially for those campy slashers, mm-hmm. you really have to be like, I'm in the specific mood for this. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. That said, we're not talking about a kaiju movie today. Like I said, we're talking about... Basket Case, 1982 mm-hmm. exploitation film written and directed by the man himself, Frank Henenlotter, mm-hmm. one of my faves. Frank himself was a loving patron of exploitation movies, the kind you'd find playing on 42nd Street in New York City in the 60s and 70s, mostly due to what he felt was a different attitude to the movies coming out of Hollywood at the time, uh, which I think is something that a lot of horror fans can relate to, not just with uh, exploitation movies, but horror in general tends to kind of have a little bit of an outsider status in terms of Hollywood's output mm-hmm. uh, and the way that other uh, genre fans look at us <laughs> in yeah. terms of like, oh, it's a thriller when it's good and it's yep. horror when it's bad. So <laughs> Absolutely. But to give kind of an idea of where his predilections lie, his first short, Slash of the Knife, played with John Waters' Pink Flamingos in 1972. I also noticed while watching the credits of this movie that it was dedicated to Herschel Gordon Lewis, considered to be the originator of the splatter film The Delightful Blood Feast in 1963. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a good one. And uh, part of what I love about horror is its willingness to acknowledge the people that came before it and sort of the the shoulders of the giants that they're standing on. And for him to come out, like, just straight up come out and be like, hell yeah, this one's for you, Herschel. (laughs) Like... Yeah. Hell yeah. I think that really ties into like the whole outsider art thing is, you know, when you have like smaller communities, more niche things, people are more likely to band together and, you know, try to prop each other up or mention like artists they love who have never really gone over in like the mainstream or the, the general consensus, but they're like, Hey, I think this is awesome. This is what is influencing me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so 10 years later, he splashed onto the scene with his feature debut with Basket Case. Uh, Now, we've talked about Larry Cohen before on the podcast, thanks to Chris from Channel 83 picking It's Alive early on in our run, uh, twice, in fact, since that was one of the episodes we had to (laughs) re-record. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Larry and Frank are like the Argonath of low-budget filmmaking in New York City, and... Both of them were just operating like a well-oiled machine in the 80s, as Larry was making Cue the Winged Serpent this very same year. Uh, Frank was bursting onto the scene, just these titans cranking out hit after hit after hit, and even managing to pull off effective sequels for the It's Alive and Basket Case franchise, not only difficult in horror in general, but especially for low-budget filmmaking, where you kind of hinge on an idea, and it's very easy for that the sheen of that idea to kind of wear off. So for the the sequels to those movies to even be okay, much less pretty good, in my opinion at least. Yeah. Is 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 noteworthy. Yeah, Basket Case Two is like honestly right up there. In a lot of ways it's probably technically a better movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll we'll eventually get into why I like the first one way more. But the the sequels are way better than they should be. Yeah. Especially considering the ending of this movie. Right. (laughs) It doesn't feel like it's leaving a lot open. No. But we'll get to that. It is also worth noting that he credits It's Alive with helping to inspire this movie. I think that there is some of that uh, that is noticeable, especially when 
we get some of the Belial POV shots. Mm-hmm. Feels very much like uh, the baby in It's Alive sort of creeping through the underbrush of L.A. Yeah. So, But where Larry could be a little more reserved, Frank really leaned into those exploitation roots and the inspiration that he found among the Times Square theaters he called, quote, the underbelly. And so he amped up the gore, the shock, and the sex in his movies. In fact, he's quoted as feeling that there is a artistic unity in setting Basket Case in a grimy hotel right there in Times Square, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Absolutely. Everybody always talks about how, like, in Batman movies, Gotham City is a character, and I feel that way about New York in this movie. It Mm -hmm. wouldn't be anything like it is without that setting. And it's, you know, because kind of... Rudy Giuliani came in and changed New York a lot. My my mom would actually say he came in and ruined it. Uh, <laughs> but this is such a time capsule because of it. This is like the kind of New York you only see in like this and Taxi Driver. Yeah, now you go to the same spots and it's just consumer bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I think like a Nintendo store. For a while there was a guy in his underwear playing acoustic guitar. Classic. <laughs> That's a reference. (laughs) (laughs) Naked cowboy doing his thing. He lived in New York, or well, he lived in Long Island, actually, and then he would come into New York, and he would see these exploitation movies, and he said that he felt a lot like Dwayne, kind of carrying around this love of horror and this darkness with him when he had to go back to his little, like, suburb town in Long Island, Mm. (laughs) and, like... Having this experience and and feeling the thrill of going into New York and seeing these movies and spending time in the underbelly, I just think is is so interesting that he managed to put it into the movie in a cool way. But they took four years to make this movie, partially because they kept running out of money. They would film some of it and then show it to investors, and then that would get the next bit of the movie made. Yeah, They used a 16-millimeter camera because they couldn't afford a 35-millimeter camera, but it! they went out and they made the best damn horror movie ever. They sure did. It's This was like your earlier question about favorite subgenre of horror. I think like this is my real answer. This is where it kind of pins down is this sort of DIY, uh, just a couple friends with a hundred dollars in their pocket and some aspirations. That's like the real, that's like the pocket of horror and just filmmaking in general that I mm-hmm. really like. It's like, Man, Basket Case is like a good punk song where yeah. it may not be like the technically best. Maybe there's a, a note that's that's off here or there, but you can tell that everybody who's making it is like passionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is it's not like the one for them. It's like I have to do this. Yeah. I have to get this out of me. And I think that's great. And I think that part of what makes this movie so long lasting and part of the best horror movie ever is thanks in large part to the creation of Belial who is an interesting and incredibly long-lasting icon of horror. Uh, Him jumping out of the basket is a classic image. He's even been used on Whose Line Is It Anyway when they're playing that game where they're the news anchors and they have to, like, figure out what's going on (laughs) behind them. So that's fun. And Belial himself is used in several different forms, in some places as a puppet created and manipulated by Kevin Haney and John Caglione, although the area where they were puppeteering him did shrink and so they had to get Frank Henenlotter's, like, eight-year-old, I think it was his daughter or his niece, I forget, but they had to get, like, an eight-year-old girl to, like, <laughs> manipulate Belial for a little bit. There's, in some places, it's stop motion. Uh, some Boy, places, is it. <laughs> <laughs> that stop, ooh. Mm, that's, it's something. Look, they're doing their best. Uh, and then sometimes it's just his hand, and that's straight up just uh- Henenlotter's hand in a glove. I don't know if they're doing their best is what I would say about the stop motion, but they were doing it. They were do- All right. Maybe not their best, but they were I, doing I, something. I, I think Henelotter said he just got so fed up with the process of stop motion that he was just like moving him with his foot at one point. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. I'm curious what you think of Belial in general as a horror icon, as like a design, all that jazz. Oh, I love Belial so much. It's such a weird design. It's such a weird concept. And he gets a little bit more characterized as the franchise goes on. But th- there, there's something, there's something about this first design that I think looks 
better than the versions they made later. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something weird about the Basket Case 2 and 3 versions of Belial. But the, this first one, it's like just that right balance of you can tell it's supposed to look like a person, but it's so just completely there's almost like a Cronenberg quality to how just like silly putty uh, of a of a creature it is and then like the two little hands that you don't I I I, I don't understand how he attacks people or what he does (laughs) like I don't really understand how he moves around and that's kind of why I love him unimportant yeah (laughs) it's not the the why isn't important it's just the fact that he does it yeah yeah, uh, I think he's great. I agree with the Cronenberg kind of comparison there. I think uh, he also kind of feels like he could have come right out of society a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I agree that I think that this one is a better design. I like Belial in the in the later two, but he does become a little more human looking. And in this one, he is. I think that they describe him as a squashed octopus at one oh, point. I, they absolutely do. <laughs> I think that uh, that's great. Yeah, when he when he's drinking with uh, the neighbor. That's right, Casey. Yep, and uh, and it's great. I think that that's a great design. But this movie would not work without a great performance by Kevin Van Hentenrick as mm-hmm. Dwayne, the quote normal half of the mm-hmm. two. He really had to bring it as well because so much of the movie is carried on his shoulder or yep. carried in his basket. Even hey. <laughs> uh, I completely agree with that. I think you know a lot of the acting in this is it is what it is. Mm. Um, I think a lot of it's pretty good for this kind of movie, this budget of movie. But yeah, to make this movie work, he, he had to be really great. And I think the the love interest, uh, I'm going to forget every name except for Sharon. Me. Yeah, him and Sharon, I think are both pretty pretty darn good. Absolutely. There weren't a ton of contemporary reviews because, like I said, it was this seedy little movie in the early '80s. But those I could find trended positive with TV Guide calling it disturbing, grotesque, and very funny at times. Basket Case is a unique work in which imagination triumphs over the limitations of budget. And I got to say, you fucking nailed it, TV Guide. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. <laughs> that's that's great. That said there were some negative reviews, but of course, as the movie was meant to shock, you know, that kind of that's okay for them. They were yeah. pretty pleased with this. In fact, Frank surreptitiously asked reviewer Rex Reed, who'd go on to co-host at the movies after Siskel and Ebert left, what he thought after leaving the movie. Uh, Rex had gone specifically after hearing some negative reviews and told Frank, though he didn't know that it was Frank, that it was, quote, the sickest movie ever made, (laughs) which is a quote that they went on to straight up use in promotion of the movie. Frank has gotten really lucky with, like with good quotes about his movies. Cause between that and you, do you know the famous quote about Frankenhooker? No. Oh, I love man. that movie though. S- somebody interview. I don't know what context it came up in, but there's a quote about Frankenhooker. That is just, if you see one movie this year, see Frankenhooker. Wow. And that quote is from Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's still on like every DVD and Blu-ray and Yeah. Bill's right. That movie rules. Yeah. And I could totally see him saying it, too. Yeah. And you know what? These quotes and and this reception worked because Mm -hmm. Basket Case has played as a midnight movie for years now. And uh, Mm -hmm. as it's become a true classic, not just of B-Cinema, but of horror in general. I think that it's Mm -hmm. interesting that it has, in a way, sort of escaped the boundaries of low-budget filmmaking and become something that a, a lot of horror fans who have put in some some depth into their knowledge, I think, will come across Basket Case at some point, which speaks to the quality of the movie, that this is kind of people's introduction into this kind of B-cinema sometimes. Yeah. I think those are the ones that really rise above uh, as far as... Because there's a, a trillion low-budget horror movies. Right. And even if you make a really good low-budget slasher movie a lot of the times, it's still a little hard to pitch that. Because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I got a guy in a mask and he kills a bunch of teenagers and like, trust me, it's really tense and good and there's great kills, (laughs) but it's, it's hard to get that across in like a review or text or telling somebody about it. But if you go to someone and say, Hey, I got this movie. It's about a a dude with a wicker basket. That's got his deformed twin brother in it. Uh, He looks like a squashed octopus. Uh, They have like a psychic connection. I was actually I actually had this conversation with a coworker of mine earlier today and he's just as I'm describing it he's just writing it down and like <laughs> oh, going to watch that later. 
Yeah, I, you know, even to that point, when you kind of have, uh, there's a little element of like creature feature to this with the design of Belial. When you have something like that, where you can just be like, look at this picture. <laughs> it's yeah. fucking crazy. That's yeah. the kind of thing that draws people in. Absolutely. I've got a patch of Blau coming out of the basket on my vest right now. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So to get into the actual movie, mm-hmm. first thing to note, splatter of blood right on the title. Let's you know what's up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta have that. And you also get some classic killer POV from within the bushes. Like I said, doctor tries to leave the house, but he feels a presence and he runs back in to call the police. Unfortunately, whatever is stalking him cuts the phone lines and the power as well. So he goes for his gun instead. But suddenly a monstrous hand reaches up and just shreds his face. There's a lot of that. It's It's so fun. Every single time I'm like, what is this hand possibly going to do? And every time (laughs) I'm like, fuck, yeah, he's going to tear that shit up is what he's going to do. He's going to pull him off screen. And when he comes back, he's going to have a bunch of gashes in his face. (laughs) And maybe other things later on. Maybe. Cut to young man named Dwayne carrying a basket through Times Square. Like we said, this is very much a time capsule. There's litter everywhere, neon lights, peep shows, drug dealers, movie theaters, and more. Finally, he stops at the Hotel Broslin, a seedy little joint that asks Dwayne if he's looking to rent a room for just a few hours or if it's an actual stay, just to give you an idea of what kind of hotel it is. There's there's a great... I, I meant to... I meant to go back and rewatch all the special features because I got the the Blu-ray trilogy that released a number of years ago. And I meant to go back and rewatch all the special features and I ended up not having time. But there's a really great one where they try to go back to this location and it's Frank Hannenlotter and his his friend and mine, R.A. the Rugged Man. <laughs> <laughs> and they try they try to get back into Hotel Broslin and it's just like an apartment building. The guy's office was in the elevator. Wow. But it's this hilarious scene of them just like trying to get somebody to buzz them into the building so they can walk <laughs> around. And uh, it's just R.A. the Rugged Man like, no, just trust us. We just, you know, we're just going to look around a little bit. And the guy's <laughs> like, uh, what's this for? <laughs> wow. Well, pour one out for the Hotel Broslin. Yeah. But so this hotel uh, manager, owner, whatever he is, uh, also asks if he's alone. And Dwayne quickly says, yes, alone, by myself, in a way that clearly is suspicious as hell. But for us, knowing the score, it's kind of interesting because Dwayne does feel alone after the separation. That's kind of the whole thing, is that once they've been split in two, he really does kind of have this uh, emotional scarring to go along with his real scarring. Well, Mm -hmm. physical scarring, I should say, because emotional scars are real, too. Dwayne pulls out a huge wad of cash to pay for the room, adding to the suspicion surrounding him, obviously, and creating the question of why is he here? Uh, according to Lauder, this wad of cash was the entire budget of the film. <laughs> I, b- I believe it. It's a lot of money. And uh, it's very funny when he pulls that out and like everyone's jaw just fucking drops to the floor. <laughs> yeah. He meets a few residents on his way up to room seven and finally reveals once inside that the basket did not, in fact, contain clothes but rather something ravenous that scarfs down some burgers that Dwayne drops in with the tinfoil still on him. <laughs> yeah. Dwayne also pulls out some blood splattered files from the now deceased doctor, though his hands don't look like the ones that killed him. So you start putting two and two together and you realize, oh, must be whatever's in this basket that did the deed. And all of a sudden your curiosity really starts to starts to rise. I think that the first time that you watch this movie, I remember it vividly. I was like, I can't wait to see what's in there. I hadn't really looked anything up about it, so I hadn't seen a picture of Belial yet. And, like, they do such a good job of teasing out the, the the way that you get to finally meet him because you see the basket shaking. You hear the noises. It's it's like seeing the fin of friggin' Bruce the Shark in Jaws. Like, they do a great job of giving you just enough to keep your interest while still not giving it to you just straight out. Yeah, I think they really thread the needle of like holding it back just long enough. And then once once you see him, you're going to see him a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. But whatever it is, is also keeping Dwayne up at night trying to talk with him. Uh, but it's obviously a psychic connection because we don't hear a voice. Mm-hmm. The next morning, one of the people who saw the fat stack of cash tries to spy on Dwayne. 
but gets shooed away by another one of his neighbors, Casey. Uh, this is a great character. I like Casey a lot. Casey who, the goat. Casey is the goat. And she proceeds to warn Dwayne that he should keep his valuables locked up because there is a very uh, palpable innocence to Dwayne. Yeah. It feels like. Um, he said, like he literally says, like, oh, this was the first hotel that I found. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's his reasoning for why he's there. Um, and we see later he's never drank before and all that stuff. Obviously, it's understandable once you realize where he, like, what his path has been. But when he just shows up in New York City like a, a, a friggin' lamb being led to the slaughter, you're like, dude, how are you managing to make it even this far? He heads out to visit Dr. Needleman, who he claims is an old family friend, but has the secretary, Sharon, give a fake name. Dr. Needleman is as grimy looking as anyone else we've seen. He's greasy. He's licking his fingers. Really like a gross looking dude. And Dwayne says he's having chest pain. And this is where we first get our, our look at sort of the remnants of another. It's another tease for Belial without even having to do with the basket because he removes his shirt and we see a ton of scar tissue covering his entire right side. And I have to say, you know, it's not it's not like a wet wound or anything, but I think that this is a pretty good looking grody effect. Like it is it really looks like they did a bad job severing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think this is one of the better effects in the movie as far as like being legitimately pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. I also like in this scene is where you start to first get like the little tinges of like a sinister side to him. Absolutely. But on his way out, Sharon drops some hints that she wants Dwayne to ask her out. He says he can't, but then he puts the basket down far away in the corner <laughs> and he whispers to her that he'll call her tomorrow. Uh, and she says that she'll have the whole day free. She pretty much has to beat him over the head with it. Yeah, she really does. I, I love this scene. <laughs> it's great. I, like we said, I, I think that Sharon is really great. I, I didn't look up her the, that actress's name and I'm going to right now. Hmm. That's the beauty of the internet, baby. I don't know her from anything else, but I do remember that she's wearing an obvious wig because she had shaved her head <laughs> because she was in a punk band. Hell yeah. Terry Susan Smith. That's her name. Hell yeah. And she's great as well. Dwayne and his basket take in a kung fu movie at Hen and Lauder's beloved 42nd Street Theater. But after nodding off, he notices that someone stole his basket just in time to hear a scream from the perpetrator, having kicked off the lock and looked inside. Again... Torn up face. This guy runs back yep. in. Looks great. And Dwayne entreats whatever is inside to save its violence. Not yet. <laughs> that really cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> that that lock getting torn off is, I think, the crucial moment of this scene. It sort of unleashes Belial in a way. Because once that that way of keeping him contained is is gone... He can he can get his freedom, you know. He he can make his own moves. Previously, everything that he wanted to do had to kind of go through Dwayne, but now yeah. with this with this lock gone, he's able to emerge from the basket of his own volition, which will come into play later when I want to talk about <laughs> something else going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get we'll get to that. Uh, this this is kind of the turning point of the movie in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, Doctor Cutter gets uh, interrupted mid-dinner by a call from Dr. Needleman, who, which, by the way, great names for all these doctors. <laughs> Liftlander, Needleman, Cutter. It's all, it's all fun stuff. And uh, Needleman warns her that he, that he saw Dwayne and that Dr. Liftlander is dead, but Cutter is unperturbed. That said, when Dr. Needleman's secretary leaves for the evening, that's Sharon, Dwayne slips back in and opens his crate we hear deep breathing, and Dwayne tells whatever it is not to forget the address book. This is a very stylish transition to POV here from the static third-person shot. I thought it was really smooth as all get out. Yeah, I agree. The monster hand like reaches up to let itself in, and uh, Needleman gets spooked. He hears a big noise out there. And again, this is where sort of the some of the technical moments do shine for me because. I really like the way that the wandering the hallway is shot. I think it looks really good. There's some interesting lighting going on. There's like a slight Dutch angle. It's obviously handheld. Um, I think that there's a lot going on there that gives it sort of a, a, a grimy feel and a little off kilter feel in a way that really benefits the movie. Yeah. The, the tone of this whole thing is like, everything's just kind of sweaty and, <laughs> and off. Great description of sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> Needleman finds his door not just opened, but torn from the hinges. 
uh, and he flees. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he goes right back in. He barricades his office behind him. Smart move. Unfortunately, not quick enough. Because when he turns around and he flicks on the light, he finds something clinging to the walls. A lump with a face and arms. <laughs> That's Belial, baby. This is our first look at him. It's so great. First of all, they really let you look at him. Yeah. After teasing for 31 minutes, they're like, here he is. Take a good friggin' gander. And then also, like we said, it's a great design. He looks freaking nasty as heck on there. How is he clinging to the wall? <laughs> Who cares? He's uh, pure core strength. <laughs> is, this the, is this the first time you hear him scream? Yes, that- I believe it is. And, uh, and boy, he just slaughters the hell out of Needleman. <laughs> yeah. Love this scene as he's like bouncing around the room, friggin' yeah. trying to like rip him off his head. And uh, it's great. There's a lot of blood spraying and they take their time. I think that this is, this is so fun because this is the first real death of the movie. You know, you get the cold open kind of, yeah. but that's just a little taste. This is the first one where we're really getting to see Belial do his thing. And for them to understand that this is what we're here for and to let them really let it play out, I think is so smart. And and something that a lot of people who go for low-budget stuff, they'll be like, look, not everything looks perfect, so we need to hide it for as long as possible. And it's like, I understand the movie that I'm seeing. Like, yeah. if I can see that he's, like, holding Belial up there, I can, I can get past that. Like, yeah. let's see the thing we're here to see. Yeah. When we're talking about the reviews earlier, it's kind of a shame that there weren't more from the time because I know that they released it originally with all these special effects like cut out. Yeah. They, I think it was like a PG 13 cut or something. They really, they cut out like all the gore and Hen and Lauder didn't know that they had put it back in until he saw a line around the block <laughs> on 42nd street, saw his special effects guy in line, asked him, what are you going to see? He's like, Oh, I'm going to see our movie. He's like, <laughs> But all your effects were were, were taken out. And he goes, no, they're, uh, I saw it the other day. They're all back in. <laughs> and for the best. Absolutely. I think Hen and Lauder said it would, would have been like uh, taking all the gore out of Basket Case is like taking all the punchlines out of a comedy. Yeah, it really is. I think that's a great comparison. And the next morning, Belial has a, a full package of hot dogs, breakfast of champions. <laughs> yeah, uncooked. Straight out the package. <laughs> Truly just disgusting. dropped into the basket. <laughs> oh, man. And this is when Dwayne unveils his plan to have some alone time with Sharon. He got a little TV to set up for uh, for Belial, plus a newspaper. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be fine. <laughs> I also like that Belial promptly rips the dial off the TV, which, by the way, this was <laughs> back when TVs had dials. <laughs> so. Yeah. But Dwayne and Sharon are having a nice time out together. They're touring New York. And finally, he's like, can I be honest with you? I don't really care about seeing New York. And she's like, you're so fucking stupid, Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that whole bit. Yeah, it's really fun. Just how how naive he is. <laughs> and she's just like, you. <sighs> <laughs> and you know what? She finds it charming. And they wind up smooching which sends Belial into a jealous rage. He bellows and he flips out and he destroys the room before crawling back into his basket when the rest of the hotel arrives to see what's up. I really, you know, like we said, some of the other characters, their performances range, as you can sort Mm -hmm. of anticipate in a movie like this, but I love the hotel manager in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He's so great. This scene where he's like, look, if this happens again, uh, I don't know. What do I know? I only run the place. Why should anyone tell me anything? <laughs> I just fucking love him. He's yeah. great. He feels like a real person, just like some guy I know. Yeah, just baffled by his yeah. situation. And had they they hadn't really established the the psychic connection between the brothers yet. So this whole little freak out in the hotel room kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, there's there's the there's the time where he uh, is like laying in bed and he's like Stop talking to me. Let me sleep. Let me sleep. Oh, yeah. But but even with that, you know, you're kind of just like, eh, it's, I don't know what's going on with this guy. This is the first time you really see the connection in action. It's yep. immediate. It's He is reacting to the emotions and knowledge of what's happening with Dwayne. 
One of the other tenants saw the wad of cash on the bed, and he breaks back in to steal it, uh, only to be greeted by Belial when he opens the basket to search for more to steal. I, I was thinking about this, and if he had just walked out of there with the wad of cash, he probably would have survived. Yeah. But no, he got greedy, and he went for uh, for the basket. And so Belial destroys this guy just like the friggin' room uh, as Dwayne winces in pain from their connection. He understands what's happening. This is kind of the two-way street of their connection, even though Dwayne says that his connection to Belial has gotten a lot more tenuous, while Belial's connection to him has grown more powerful, uh, which is scary. They only made him stronger. Spooky. (laughs) But Dwayne rushes back and he pushes Sharon away in fear, saying he doesn't want to get her killed as well. Unfortunate foreshadowing. And he's questioned by the cops when he gets up to his room. And uh, he is as shocked as they are to find nothing in the basket (laughs) after the cop opens it up. (laughs) But after they leave, Belial does emerge from the toilet. Very funny. I love seeing him hanging out there. As you do. As you do. And they argue about his date. And Belial, I'm doing finger quotes here, says that Dwayne is deserting him and that everyone deserves what they've been getting. So there's a real vindictive side to uh, to Belial here that we see. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel a lot of ways about Belial, especially when it comes to this whole story. Because this is, I mean, th- them hunting down the doctors is sort of the framework but this is like to me the real story of the movie belial never had a chance at a normal life mm-hmm. he was set up for failure from the beginning and because you, you do kind of have to remember it's 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 easy to forget because of how he looks and how the movie treats him but he is spo- supposedly a human being yeah he's the brother he's a, a full-on twin yeah and you know Dwayne really could just go live a normal life at this point, but Belial doesn't really have anywhere to go. He has no other connection to the world or to people. And right. this is something that gets, you know, explored a little bit more in the sequels, but it's definitely there. And to a degree, like, you know, Belial is vindictive, but he's also kind of a tragic figure. Absolutely. I think it's understandable why he is out kind of for for revenge against even the whole world. You know, that kind of mean streak that he could have developed because when everyone treats you like a monster, then at some point you're like, all right, fine, I'm a monster. That's how it goes. I'm going to do the thing that you think I'm going to do. And, you know, when they separate him, it is with the intent that he will die. You know, that is that is the father's whole point is I want this thing gone. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right in terms of him not being set up for success, even beyond his uh, his deformity. Yeah. And it is tragic. Yep. That night, Dwayne goes out to the bar that Casey happens to work at, and they get to chatting. And since he's drunk, when she asks what's in the basket, he admits it. My brother, a formerly conjoined twin, they laugh it up, but it for Dwayne in particular, it kind of like turns into like mania. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like he's actually laughing because of humor. <laughs> yeah. He's like kind of breaking down in laughter and you can see Casey just getting more and more uncomfortable. The more he talks. Yeah. Yeah. He, he opens up more and more. He talks about how his brother's deformed and their mom died giving birth to them and everyone except their aunt hated them and kept them hidden. And like you said, Casey is starting to get creeped out as Dwayne admits that they tried to kill Belial, but he just got stronger mm-hmm. and uh, that now he always knows what Dwayne is thinking. And here is where it gets really interesting because he says, if only you knew what it was like, Dwayne and I kept hidden from everyone. Wow. Mm. Big moment. <laughs> this to me says that Belial has gotten so strong that he basically has a foothold in Dwayne. And more abstractly, that Belial is truly the id part of Dwayne's personality, something that he carries around with him always, but hidden away in the dark, afraid to let his dark fantasies be seen or unleashed. I think that what, I, what this is kind of where I was going for earlier, you know, when the lock comes off of the cage, that all of a yep. sudden this is when 
Dwayne starts experiencing life more and more as well. He starts drinking. He starts meeting women. He starts going mm-hmm. out and partying. And these are all things that are very id-focused and, and out, sort of out of character for Dwayne. He says that these are things that he's never done. And, you know, it's it, this is – I think that part of what makes this movie interesting is that there is – a bit of abstraction to it, but it is also a great literal story. Like if you take it literally, it is great. And you can also kind of dig into it a little more and, and take some of the symbolism of it as well. Yep. We also see a flashback to them right after the death of their mother. The father is freaking out about yelling how he's supposed to give them both a name. Like he has two sons instead of one freak. Yeah. <laughs> he gives the name Belial because he's a murderer in his eyes. Uh, Belial, of course, a Hebrew word that basically means worthless and in Christianity can refer to Satan or another fallen angel associated with lust and lawlessness. Both things that I would associate with this Belial as well. Yeah. Call me crazy, but uh, their dad is a real jerk. Yeah, he's not he's not such a nice guy. I do not like him. Twelve years later, they're now, you know, young men. Uh, their aunt is talking with Dr. Cutter. Uh, Worth noting that the doctor continually refers to them as one being, despite the ant correcting her every time. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. And also uh, very funny to see them wearing a shirt that just kind of lets Belial hang out the side. And and it's a button-up shirt, too. Like, you would think they would just leave it unbuttoned and, like, (laughs) kind of tuck the one side back. But no, they they cut a hole. (laughs) Good for Belial. Yeah. (laughs) But... One day, while the aunt is gone and can't defend the two boys, the father convinces the trio of doctors to do the operation on them against their will. Again, not such a good guy, this dad. I do not like him. Dwayne gets called by Belial, who, like I said, they thought that Belial had died, but he, in fact, got stronger and and went off to, to hide. But Dwayne gets called by him, and he heads down to the basement. But when his father comes down to investigate the power tool noises... He discovers the ultimate battle bot. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. It's, it's really kind of super out of place in the rest in this movie, but it's such a cool thing. It's such a cool. It's just like a buzzsaw on like a go kart coming down. Rakes, machetes, all yeah. kinds of shit in there. It's so good. And you know what? It comes on down that ramp and it cuts old dad right in twain. And one leg falls one way and the other leg falls the other way. Truly it's, delightful. I, I do wonder if... Have you ever seen Wrong Turn 2? I have not. There's a really good death in Wrong Turn 2. It's right at the beginning, so this isn't a spoiler. But there's a really good death where somebody gets cut in half vertically with an axe. And the wow. axe comes down between the legs. Guts fall down. One leg falls one way. The other leg falls the other way. And it's framed exactly like this. So I do wonder if uh, if this was an inspiration for it. Seems very possible, and uh, that sounds fun as hell. It's it's great. If you <laughs> see if you see any wrong turn movie, see Wrong Turn Two. You don't need to see the first one. You definitely don't need to see the ones after it. <laughs> but Wrong Turn Two is very good. All right, I'll have to check it out. And it's got Henry Rollins in it too. There you go. Henry Rollins, star of such movies as Lost Highway, as well. <laughs> <laughs> He's the star of that movie, right? In my heart, he is. (laughs) But Belial and Dwayne's aunt comes up later and says, the cops are gone. Everyone thinks Belial is dead. You got away with it, and I'm glad. Let's keep things the way that they are right now, and I'll take care of both of you. That's how to be an ally. Hell yeah. Good for you, Aunt Belial. (laughs) 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 And she starts reading them a bedtime story, and specifically... That story happens to be from The Tempest, and more specifically, she is reading them a speech from Caliban, who is a deformed and animalistic rapist, and much as she is the only one who can see Belial's humanity, so too is this speech a rare moment of humanity for Caliban in The Tempest. There you go. Get a little Shakespeare in your exploitation, folks. That Henelotter is a smart guy. Yeah. He wants you to think that he does these movies like haphazardly because he thinks it's funny, but he puts a lot more thought in than you would expect based on some of his interviews. Hell yeah. Back in current day, Casey takes Dwayne back to his room and pours him into bed, but then goes to check out if he was telling the truth and looks in the basket. Lucky for her, Belial is nowhere to be found because based on what we've seen, that would have ended in her death. True. Unluckily for her, he reveals himself having snuck into her room 
and uh, feeling her up while she sleeps. Really awful. This is, again, sort of where you see that, like, id, unrestrained aspect of Belial. She panics very reasonably when she wakes up and sees him. And the whole hotel comes running again, giving him a distraction to slip back into Dwayne's room. Yeah. And, yeah, this is is an aspect of the movie that's... Uh, it's very in line with the themes and what's going on character-wise. But also, you know, if you're uncomfortable with this sort of sexual assault by a deformed monster human person, you know, maybe maybe you skip it. Yeah. <laughs> I, would to- I would totally understand. Look, I mean, in a lot of exploitation movies, they play with taboo very deliberately. Rape is one of the biggest taboos there is. Yep. And it tends to feature a lot in exploitation movies, apocalypse movies, that sort of thing, because it gets people talking. It's unfortunate. I think that it's a weak crutch uh, and that it shouldn't be used in in movies so frequently. But, you know, this is it was 1982, not to excuse it. Right. But it is what it is. It is all I can say. Yeah, it's it's one of those where, you know, as a straight cisgendered white guy, it doesn't turn me off from the movie, but different people have different experiences, have different tolerance levels, and if it's if that's your cutoff, that's perfectly valid. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to I don't want to sit here and say that, you know, you you can't dislike the movie for it. So even though it's my favorite movie, you know, not everything is for everyone. Absolutely. And the next morning. They go to Dr. Cutter's, and they find that she is, in fact, a vet, which is humiliating, dehumanizing, goes hand-in-hand with her looks of disgust and claims that Belial is inhuman, really just kind of slaps him in the face a little bit. This is kind of, you know, as much as they've already been like, well, we're here to kill her, this is even more the last straw. (laughs) Yeah. His excuse to see her is that his cat is badly cut on the side, uh, which, of course, plays into their actual trauma, of course. But as they head inside, he taunts her a bit, telling her it's not a cat and that Dr. Liftlander operated on it unsuccessfully. I like this. I like when when he really is like, all right, we're here. I'm going for it. I'm going to get these little digs in on her. Now, there's a specific reaction that Dwayne has when he notices that this doctor is a vet. Mm. Was this doctor always a vet? I think so. I think that that's the reason why she was like willing to do it. Yeah. Is because she like looked at it as an animal. Exactly. And, and dehumanize them and it's gross and it's bad and she yeah. sucks too. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good subtle little detail that Hen and Lauder threw threw in there. Yeah, and, and she picks up what Dwayne is putting down and she tells him to get out, but she does want to see what's in the basket. So Curiosity killed the cat, Doctor. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were holding on to that one. <laughs> For real, off the dome. <laughs> but she opens it, Belial jumps out and attacks, and she goes to grab a scalpel to defend herself, but drops it, and so Belial shoves her face in the drawer, and she emerges looking like a damn pincushion. This is like the best shot in the movie as far as the kills go. Ooh, it looks good. The, it's so good. It's such a weird visual, and that's like, if you don't have the budget to do really wild special effects and you've only got a few moments to make it count, the creativity is what's going to... Mm, that's what's going to stick in my mind. And mm-hmm. I've never I've never seen th- quite this in another movie. Yeah, it also... Here I go again, folks. I'm talking psycho. It gives me a little bit of that feeling of when Arbogast is falling down the stairs, and it kind of yeah. like zooms in on his face to really let you get the emotion of, of the despair and the understanding that this is the end for him. And to me, yeah. this very much conjures that same image of the close-up on his face, uh, her face, and and really letting her like scream it out. I think that it's great. I think that you know, maybe I'm stretching. Maybe I just love Psycho. But you know, there's maybe a little bit of it there. We've already established that Henning Lauder puts a lot of thought into these things, despite his claims to the contrary. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'd be hard pressed to find a horror movie that's not influenced by Psycho in some way. Hell yeah, I totally agree. Um, but Dwayne flees and he finds Sharon waiting for him, asking for company since the cops have been questioning her all morning. Uh, they start getting frisky, although that's relative since Dwayne is clearly inexperienced at insects along with all the other stuff that we've already talked about. And Belial says, that's enough of that. And he Mm -hmm. pops up (laughs) again. Here is that it aspect. Sex is on Dwayne's mind. Here comes Belial. She freaks out and he wraps her in the blanket and throws her out. (laughs) 
Well, he wraps her in the blanket and throws her out after just hold it, just holding her there for an uncomfortably long period of time while Belial just screams. Yeah. Everyone's screaming and looking at each other. <laughs> Dwayne is just staring at Belial. That's true. That's make, true. Like not moving at all. Everyone is screaming around him. <laughs> and it lasts way longer than I remembered it lasting. It is long. It, it's. I think that you're supposed to feel uncomfortable. I think that this is sort of that psychic link that, you know, we're yeah. not seeing it as explicitly as, as some movies might do it. But I think that this is Belial getting his influence on Dwayne kind of yep. getting him to just hold her there. We will see later that Belial himself does not have any genitals. And so there is a certain impotence to his rage. Although while well, he uh, does, he does manage to, <laughs> to have kids. Later, I mean, so. He does manage to impregnate someone in the, the sequels. He has a cloaca. Like a bird. How does he do any of the things he does? That's right. And at the very least, in this movie, we are not led to believe that he has any genitals. So there is a, a certain impotence to his rage. And uh, here comes the stop motion. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Lyle lets himself out of the crate. His eyes glow red as he reaches out to Dwayne and then yells out the window. I love his scream so much. It's so, it sounds pained. It really does. And that is actually the same actor playing Dwayne who did those screams. Mm. So there you go. Play, he was doing his twin stuff. Yeah. It's also his face on Belial, right? Yeah, they, the, did, they took a cast. Yeah. That's cool. Good, good work on there. Cut to Dwayne dreaming of running naked through New York to Sharon's home. Full frontal. Full frontal. A lot Full of dong front. flopping around. A little something for the ladies and the people who are just interested in dongs. And he he dreams of molesting Sharon much the way that Belial did to Casey. Almost the exact mm-hmm. same way. But he starts awake. Now... The thing is that this is less a dream and more his psychic link with Belial, who is at Sharon's now. Again, there is an attempted rape scene here. It winds up being more of a murder because he doesn't, he can't have sex in this movie, as far as we can tell. But he is trying to rape her. And then because, again, with that impotent rage, he winds up just killing her. Yeah, this this whole scene. I mean, I, I will say... I found a really, well, I don't, I kind of want to save it until the very end. So go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's the whole movie does kind of lead to this and it's very in line with everything that's going on with the, with the id and with Belial trying to do the things that he really can't do that Dwayne is able to do. Yeah. But it also, yeah, it's. Maybe it goes too far. Who who can say? Only you, yeah. the viewer, can yeah. decide if it goes too far for you. It's it's definitely very uncomfortable, but it's yes. also supposed to be. Yeah. Dwayne arrives to grab him and freaks out, threatening Belial. But when the uh, shouting draws the attention of the rest of the hotel, Belial uses the distraction to attack Dwayne, lifting him to the ceiling by the balls. Yeah. That's power. I mean, he's already you know blown a door off his hinges, so... Yeah. Belial is very strong for his size. Sure is. And, uh, and then he straight up knocks him out the window and they tumble out mm-hmm. together. They cling to the hotel sign, but Belial's grip winds up hanging Dwayne. And then his grip with his other hand slips and they splatter on the ground, uh, both ostensibly dead as a crowd gathers around them. And I thought that this was a really interesting ending. And I found a really cool quote from Frank about it. And he said, I knew since the film was a revenge drama or a revenge melodrama, the doctors were so evil, were so wrong, that the audience would be cheering the killings, which they did. But I wanted to remind them at the end that they shouldn't be cheering death and killings and the monster. This guy is a monster. They've been murdering people. And here, they murdered a good person. And I thought that was worth remembering. When Dwayne and Belial died at the end, I wanted them to remember that they deserved that punishment. Hell yeah, Frank. Hell yeah, Frank. This is, like we've said, the rape shit sucks. That is bad news. But for Frank to at least be cognizant of this and be like, they deserve this punishment at the end, they're going to pay for their crimes, I think is very interesting and not something 
that a lot of people who work within the exploitation subgenre would necessarily have the wherewithal to determine. Yeah, in general, I think there's a lot, just a lot of thought put into the things that are put on screen in this movie. Yes. And it is an exploitation movie, but everything does feel purposeful. Mm-hmm. So there we go. That's Basket Case. And now, Zach, we've reached the point of the show mm. where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And you are going to start us off, pal. Oh, boy. Basket Case is the best horror movie ever made because it... I don't want to say it transcends its genre because I feel I always feel like that's a little bit of a cheap shot at the genre, but it's more than the sum of its parts. It's more than its budget, and it's got a lot more going on beneath the surface than you would expect. Like I mentioned earlier, Basket Case is kind of like a good punk rock song. It's really creative. There's a lot of original ideas. It's got the shock value it's got cool deaths but that's not really what it's about it's about these characters it's about them kind of figuring out their way in the world and fucking up along the way in some nasty ways you're not entirely supposed to root for them so there's a lot of shades of gray going on and it's just such a weird little movie yeah it's it's just such there's nothing else like basket case even the sequels are not anything like Basket Case. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because there is an element of it that feels like just go out and make something. You know, take whatever budget you can find, scrap it together, get your friends, get out there and make a movie. But to, you know, when you say that, sometimes you get something like scary tales is like the image mm. that pops up in your mind where. Part of the joy is in the uh, the failures of it. And for me, Basket Case manages to retain that feeling while still being a good movie. I think that mm-hmm. they get have some really solid effects, some really fun kills. The characters are interesting and complex, as we've discussed the entire way. The fact that there is so much going on under the surface, despite what Frank would have us believe, mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is incredible. And... All of this to function as such an interesting time capsule of a bygone era that I don't think will ever come back. You know, it's it's it was a golden time for exploitation, and I think that this really kind of pays homage to it while still being a part of it. Yeah, and something you said I really want to like put a pin in is this is not a so bad it's good movie. Right. There is there is zero irony in my love for Basket Case. It's great. It's just a good movie. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people, you know, see the low budget effects, see kind of the way it's filmed and just the bizarre nature of it, and they assume it's you know it's like a Birdemic or a Troll Two or something. But really, it's I don't I don't want to say take it seriously because it's not that kind of movie. But, (laughs) you know, it is a real movie. Yes, absolutely. Zach, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. Oh, my pleasure. This is a movie that I've been dying to talk about and I've been looking forward to having you on the show as well. So please tell people where they can listen to your music, read your writing. It's all great. And I highly encourage people to check it out. My music. I am chopped seven times everywhere. I've been actually you know, fairly anonymous with this project up until now. So this is the, the debut of, Hey, it's the coming out party. Yeah. This is my coming out party. Hey, it's me <laughs> it, just ripping off the mask. It's me, Austin. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm chop seven times. It's chop the number seven and times that's it on every social media, Instagram, Twitter, Bandcamp, TikTok Now, I actually, I'm releasing an EP next, fr- a week from today when we're recording this. So Friday the 2nd. This this uh, upcoming Friday when you're up- listening. This upcoming Friday. Or, well, or maybe a Friday way in the past, depending on when you're listening. That's right. It may be out <laughs> already. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've got, a, I've got an EP coming out called Cyber Violence. Um, Great I've, cover to it. I've seen it already. Can't wait to hear it. And as far as writing, I write a little bit for dread central i've got a bunch of stuff up on wicked horror um though i haven't written there for a little while and i've got my own website called the wasteland digest 
and it's wastelanddigest.com. I should be putting up a like mid-year music so far. Most of most of the writing I do for my own website is mostly music focused because I don't really write for any music sites. So right. That's where I get that out. <laughs> so if you want to hear me talk about why Sky is good, actually. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hey, I'll co-sign that too. Can't wait to go see uh, Jeff Rosenstock do Sky Dream. People oh, yeah. out there. If you uh, if you're in New York at that time for that show, see if you can find me at the show. The fact that the two of us have gone this whole podcast without mentioning Jeff Rosenstock until now <laughs> is actually a miracle. <laughs> it really is. I'm kind of surprised <laughs> about that. <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck horror movies. This is a Jeff Rosenstock stand <laughs> podcast now. <laughs> late late swerve, but I'm here for it. Uh, definitely check out the stuff. I love the writing. I love seeing the Godzilla stuff, especially. It's great. It's great stuff. Thank you. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That extends pretty much everywhere, but I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, You can also check out the Patreon if you want more episodes. There's bonus stuff like spotlight episodes on Solaris. Um, I did a whole episode. I always forget to plug this one. It was really great. We talked about uh, EC Comics and all that stuff like uh, the Crypt Keeper and, and Vault of Horror and all that jazz. That was a really fun episode, and you can find that only on the Patreon so uh, people should go check that out. And I also always forget to plug this. If you want another mailbag episode, send your questions, comments, hypotheticals, all that jazz to bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. Uh, that's going to be it for me. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.